if there are people who don't want to really coordinate with this system, they're not going to be very effective. They're just going to be off doing stuff and, you know, that's going to be complicating everything that's going on, complicating any response effort. Uh, the other thing is, uh, in a fire or in a situation where there's an evacuation that's necessary, uh, there will often be people who, uh, well, okay, there's people who are not ready for an evacuation and the first thing they'll do is walk around the house in circles and say, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? And then they'll start calling their neighbors, what do I do, what do I do? And then their neighbors go, what do I do, what do I do? And then they'll start, you know, and it goes on from there. They may or may not uh, evacuate themselves very well. But there will always, almost always be people who, no, I'm not evacuating, I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight for my house or whatever. And I don't know if those are the, you know, if there's a Venn diagram where there's overlap of the people who just resist authority generally and people who want to stay uh, home and evacuate and not evacuate and save their house from whatever comes. Judy Clark is an analyst and emergency preparedness coordinator. She joins the Plutopia podcast this time as we do a deep dive into emergency response and ways we can be better prepared. I'm very glad to see everybody here and uh, to talk about a subject that uh, I've been pretty interested in for a long time, though I have to say I'm, I've dipped into uh, emergency preparedness conversations uh, going back to the Southeast Asian tsunami. And it's a little bit odd that I, sitting in Texas, was involved in the response to the tsunami. But that happened because I was uh, connected to some people through World Changing, which was uh, a nonprofit that had a, a blog, the World Changing blog. And uh, some of the other bloggers there created what was called the SEAT blog, S-E-A-E-A-T. It was the Southeast Asian, East Asian Tsunami blog, I think. Um, and um, we were involved partly in trying to come up with resources, and they were trying to figure out how to how to get in touch with people. I mean, uh, there was kind of a, a major wipeout there. And uh, it was very difficult to contact people in that particular context. And of course, it was catastrophic, really. Uh, it had a catastrophic effect on the region. A lot of people died. Um, and then some years later, some of the same people gathered uh, and, and several other people, a bunch of us who were kind of involved in technology, especially open source technology, uh, when Hurricane Katrina happened, we started what was called the Katrina People Finder Project. And uh, a guy named Kaping Yi developed uh, a format called the People Finder Interchange Format, a data format. And much of that project involved scraping data about people who were either looking for people or people who were trying to let people know where they were uh, and putting that all into a, a, a structured database using the people finder interchange format. And um, we were pretty successful at that, at helping people find each other. One of the spinoffs from that was another thing called shelter finder. Uh, we found that shelters, for people who had been 
cast far and wide by the the uh, hurricanes uh, flooding, that a number of those people were showing up at shelters here and there, and and sometimes the shelters were impermanent, so there was like a lot of movement around. So it helped to be able to track not just where people were, but where the actual shelters were, and whether a shelter that was there yesterday is still there today. So we did that quite a bit. We got into a lot of conversation then about something that's become fairly common now, which was uh, emergency alerts via SMS. Uh, Several people were talking about how that could be managed, and I don't know exactly to what extent that fed into what ultimately later happened, but I'm sure all of you have got emergency alerts on your cell phones. Uh, It's a fairly common thing now. Yeah, if they don't, then uh, uh, Warren Central Texas, the the organization Warren Central Texas uses something called Everbridge. And uh, we can share a link with them so that if, if you want to know what's going on and what to do about it, you can sign up for these alerts. Okay, let's see. That's Warren Central Texas. Warren Central Texas. Here's you want me to put it in the chat here? Uh, I'm I found it and I am going to share it on the And John, I I've known you since be you know the emergencies that happened before the actual physical emergencies which was uh, early in EFF. And oh, yeah. what we were doing with EFF. Uh, Those were the days so when was, actually when I originally invited you to join us on the podcast, uh, I was thinking about discussing that a bit. Um, I think that I believe our first face to face meeting was at the big chapters uh, yep. chapters meeting. Uh, EFF had talked for some time about forming chapters and invited a bunch of us to meet at Georgia Tech and discuss how those chapters would work. But when we got there, they said, well, we've decided not to have chapters. You know, they decided- were, yeah, they were open to chapters. And then uh, Mitch Ratcliffe and I and you and there, Edville Meddy, and there are a few others that started to say, well, if we want, you know, if you want chapters, we want to do this with our chapter. And they that's when EFF had to say, oh, let's rein this in. Yeah, and that was happening uh, quite a bit on an email group that John Quarterman had set up. Uh, called, what was it? This Bang Group uh, is my <laughs> recollection. Um, and um, w- w- some fights were kind of breaking out there, and there were there was a lot of contention. There were people had different ideas about uh, what the chapters should be and how they should relate to EFF. And Jerry Berman, who had just come on board as new director, the director at the time. Uh, had been Cliff Figallo, yep. who was, was uh, the late Cliff Figallo, who was a good friend of mine and who was uh, at one time director at the well or co-director at the well. And Cliff, uh, they brought Cliff in because he understood community building and they were going to do a big community building effort. But Jerry Berman, when he showed up, convinced them that they really needed to focus on going to Washington and uh, and Jerry used to say, you know, if you want if you want to get people who are out in the states really effective, get them to bust themselves to Washington, and show up at the offices of their uh, legislators. 
So uh, I don't know. What was your your view of that, Judy, that meeting? Uh, I think it was pivotal because a lot of us brought our community building experience into the meeting and we had uh, our own level of expertise with the work that we were doing locally and how that would, you know, be able to work best with a little bit of, uh, you know, sort of the corporate level support, not really corporate, but. Uh, and so when we shared our ideas about what works and EFF saw how chaotic that was, and uh, I think they just freaked. And just realized, oh, this is, you know, this is an army of ants. Yeah, the thing the thing I remember was them coming in from a retreat. They had just been in a retreat. And they sort of all filed in the, the members of the EFF board and the staff. And they said, well, we brought you all here to discuss uh, forming chapters, but we have decided not to have chapters. Oh, see, but we will, we will tell you how to build a network. Yeah, you remember the chapters discussion happening before uh, before I remembered it happening. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about it for a while, and I, I remember being on some phone calls with uh, Jerry and Sherry Steele, who was uh, working with him, yeah. and um, who later became director. And uh, they were starting to express concern even before we had that meeting um, that they weren't going to – Jerry really, I think he felt that he needed to have more control over the chapters than was was obviously going to work, given the everybody was feeling pretty autonomous, all the various uh, organizations that were hoping to become chapters. And kind of the way they put it in the meeting was, well, we don't feel that we should ask you all to 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 let us control you, we should just form a network and we should network with each other and have a network of all these different organizations. That's, I mean, that's the, that's yeah. the way I recall the meeting. Yeah, yeah. Well, and now we here we are today with the EFF doing its crazy, very successful work that they're doing and not so much chapters. Yeah, except for EFF Austin, which is still there. Yeah. Still jamming away. EFF Austin uh, was formed to be an alpha chapter of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, i.e. initial chapter. Yeah. Uh, and that was because their first big like case that got them a lot of publicity was, was here in Austin, the Steve Jackson Games case. And Steve was uh, one of the people who strongly suggested that they build a chapters organization. And uh, and in that same conversation, convinced them that Austin would be a, a good first place to to have a, a chapter. So we started building a chapter here, and we even incorporated it. We were all raring to go. You did an awesome job, all you know, from the beginning, all over the years. You've always done an awesome job. So, cheers for that. Well, we always. We always appreciated every opportunity to throw big parties and incidentally at those parties, try to help people understand, um, understand the issues that EFF was focused on. So anyway, that's how, how we met. Uh, and now some years later, uh, we've both gone through a lot of evolution and now you are doing disaster preparedness. Informally. 
um, I'm trying to uh, change my field from all the work that I've done in the past to being an official emergency planning person. But I'm not really officially, so I'm I'm here to be a cheerleader. And to you help talked. To, I'm sorry. You you talked earlier about uh, uh, getting notification about an emergency situation, the various methods, and that's something really. Uh, I've taken a lot of interest in since uh, high school when I was working in our local radio station, and they had something called the uh, emergency broadcast system that was uh, replacing Conrad, which was a government thing that was going to take over the radios and TVs and give you emergency uh, advice and uh, orders. <laughs> and it's these things have evolved uh, a lot. There have been numerous things. And I notice you're a ham radio operator, and they have done some of the finest emergency notification and emergency action. Can you talk about the various ways that people get notified that there is actually an emergency? You know, you both touched on this, and communications in different ways. Communications are probably one of the biggest challenges in any disaster, in any emergency, in any kind of a big thing that happens. The first thing everybody needs to know is, WTF, what just happened? And the second thing they need to know is what to do about it. You know, okay, there was a big explosion somewhere or there was a big rainstorm or there was, you know, the heat suddenly cut out or whatever. Uh, okay, well, that's what happened. And that's called situational awareness. That's the term for that, situational awareness, knowing what's going on. And I'm, I'm gonna get back to you, Scoop, don't worry. Uh, and then the second thing is Okay, well, now what do I need to know about it? What do I need to do about this situation, this, this circumstance? And uh, when there's a big disaster, like some kind of a really big emergency disaster kind of a thing, there is absolutely not going to be enough firemen to put or fire people to put out the fires. There's not going to be enough law enforcement people to put out to the messages to get you know evacuated from certain areas. There absolutely is not enough first official first responders, not enough ambulances to care for everybody that's going on. So the place for ham radio, one of the places, many places for ham radio is to assist with the communications. Uh, and it's for instance, going out with CERT groups and doing a windshield damage assessment. What's going on in my neighborhood, in my bigger neighborhood? You know, are there any big fires going on? Are there any sinkholes? You know, are there any uh, mass casualty incidents are what's going on in my neighborhood and then to relay that back to a cert headquarters a cert incident command post is called uh, and then if there's life-threatening situations the ham radio operators not only can work from the field to the incident command posts but they can also work a level up to say hey we have life-threatening situations in these five areas which have been reported and uh and this is what needs to be done these are the situations this is you know 20 people fell into a sinkhole or whatever uh this is the situation that that has occurred and and briefly this is the situation and who's responding to this and what they're doing and then the incident command above that uh the, you know the people who are in charge whether they're official first responders or cert level whatever then they can pass that life-threatening situation up a level where they can make decisions about what's the biggest life-threatening situation we face and how to respond to that first. So ham radio operators uh, can be uh, in the field correspondence to the points of control and they can also reach out beyond. You know, if, uh, if somebody gets lost, we do a lot of um, public service uh, events with a, like 
public health and safety requirements with races and such, Oakland marathons and those kind of things, bike races, a lot of those. And we can pass the message on, well, you know, somebody, somebody's kid wandered off when they were turning a corner and they looked around and the kid was gone or the dog is gone or, you know, the bike has a flat tire and the person now has, you know, is stuck out in the middle of nowhere. Um, then we can radio in and say, we need a, you know, a car to come and pick these people up, or we need a little search team to find, go find this person's missing kid or whatever it is, this, those situations that happen when there's big events, things that do happen. And so we can radio in uh, what happens in those situations and then advise the people what, what there is going to be to do about it. I have to say, say that I, I'm a, going to be eternally grateful to all the ham radio operators in Central Texas. When we had the 2021 meltdown of uh, electricity and everything else. Or freeze uh, up. Yeah. And we had uh, no internet, no power, no heat. And uh, we were you know, huddling in our house. And I remembered my uh, battery-powered uh, scanner. And I went and I, I got my initial information from some ham radio operators who were out there, you know, filling in because a lot of people, you know, they didn't have their internet. They didn't, you know, a lot of the radio stations were not uh, getting across. A lot of people don't have battery operated radios. That's I right. Fortunately do. And that was a, gr a great thing that they were doing. Yeah, there's a, there's different levels of radios depending on uh, how how much you want to get into it. But you know you can go up to the local uh, Walmart or or you know Target or whatever and get yourself an FRS GMRS radio. FRS is family radio service. You can usually get a couple of them for not very much money, and they don't go very far. They're not very powerful. But if you're somewhere else in the neighborhood and something happens, you can call into like your home and say, I'm okay, and I'm on my way home with this radio, not very powerful, doesn't go very far, but the ham radio is, you know, it's a, you study for the license, you get the license, and then you can call in for much greater distances. And in fact, some ham radio operators have contesting where they try and reach other people all around the world. So with the right setup, you can really reach a long distance, uh, but you don't have to spend, you know, that much time and money on staying in touch with everyone. Yeah, I have one right here. My wife is disabled, and uh, she's on the other side of the house. And we stay in communication if I'm doing something in here, and she needs something. Got the radio, and I have tons of them. I, I have way too many uh, devices anyway. That's a an addiction that I have to address. See, I think there's even some kind of a little, you know, basic radio thing on your uh, phone if your phone is working, which in a big disaster it won't be, but. You know, it's, you can practice, like, holding down the talk button. Yeah, there's so much that we're, uh, that we take for granted that we're just used to having. And uh, in the particular, like, snowpocalypse that we had here, many people were without electricity, but they were also without water. Yes. And, uh, and without electricity, well, the cell towers were still working, so 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 long as you could keep your iPhone char or your phone charged, your smart device, you could uh, you could maintain some contact and get some information through that particular device. But those you know, that wasn't really sustainable, and um, uh, the electricity took, in some cases, I think weeks to come back. For yeah. some people, 
Yeah, it came back pretty quickly for us, but it was much longer for some people. And the water was out for a really long time. And and that's something that I never would have imagined that we would lose both electricity and water at the same time. And I feel that I was pretty naive and innocent before then <laughs> and definitely unprepared. Yes. Well, we don't know what's going to happen. And so, uh, you know, this gets into some of the basics that, that uh, I want everybody to remember about this or to learn about this. One, you know, one thing is, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the hour, get, get your alerts, sign up for alerts so that if there is a message coming over the phone and your phone is still working, then, you know, great. The cell towers may be working for a day or two, maybe a two after something happens, but then their batteries, their backup batteries go out and you won't have cell phones either. So then you won't have electricity or water or cell phones. Yeah, the so, cell phones here in Bastrop County, uh, the, a lot of the cell towers went down. We hadn't, you know, our, our cell phones were just basic paperweights because we couldn't get anything done with them. And after the uh, batteries have uh, have been sucked dry from <laughs> no electricity to charge with, then, you know, they're definitely a paperweight. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and it's it's relatively cheap and easy to get yourself a backup battery that'll help with just your your phones, you know, get a battery that's good enough for your phones. And, uh, and then you'll at least have a few extra hours. Yeah, I've invested in a, uh, um, uh, uh, what I call a power brick and it charges by a, a USB cable, but it holds an enormous amount of power and you could plug your phone in to, to do it. And you could use it as a light. And if you, know, you have no flashlight, you could, so I carry these things around. I have a ton of them. So, I, I just keep, you know, <laughs> sucking the power out of one and then grab another one. Yeah. You know, Scoop, that raises an interesting uh, situation, which is that batteries do die after a while. And, you know, a lot of people are, uh, are, are of the mind that, well, I don't need one today, so therefore I'm not going to need one at all. Uh, and, you know, if I buy one today, then, you know, I won't need it for all the time that it's good. And then all of a sudden it'll be bad and I'll need it and it won't be there anymore. Well, yeah, that, that's a possibility. But uh, since we don't know what's going on, you know, we kind of have to make a plan for how things work, you know, how things might work. So, you know, get a battery backup. Like you've got a bunch of battery backups. You'll probably keep a few more devices online for as long as uh, need, you, you need them until you can connect with somebody else who knows. And, uh, and battery backups aren't that expensive. You can get, you know, little ones and the connectors for them for your phones and whatever other devices you think are important for you. Yeah, another thing, the, the weather radios that you can get, uh, they're not very expensive. And they pick yes. up the uh, the weather stations, but they also, uh, most of them also pick up, you know, AM and FM radio. And that turned out to be our only entertainment deal once we you know, some of the stations in Austin finally got back up is we were sitting there listening to the, you know, um, music on uh, the weather radio because other than that, you know, you'd be, we'd have to sing to each other and that wasn't going to work. <laughs> but yeah, but you definitely should have the weather radio because uh, that's one thing that, especially during tornado season, that you really need to have on and have and pay attention to. You do. And a lot of, interestingly, and this is a sign of the times, a lot of AM radio stations have good backup systems. So they'll keep broadcasting even when you've lost power. But mm -hmm. who's got an AM radio these days? Unless you, you know, go out and get a battery backup radio, and then you all of a sudden you'll have access to a lot of news about what's actually going on and where to find the shelters and where to find water, 
you know, points of distribution for water and those kind of things. AM, you know, AM is still out there. Yeah, I, I, I started out working in AM radio, and you know, John and I grew up in the same town in West Texas, and I didn't think anyone would would listen. But uh, we got an emergency broadcast system notification that a tornado was headed toward our town. And I got on the radio and started you know, reading off all the notifications we were receiving over the AP wire service and from the sheriff's office. And the next day, I was deluged by people being thankful for you know, having someone telling them what's going on because uh, in those days, there wasn't a lot of uh, Notif- ways to find out other than on your your local radio. I think that was the tornado that jumped over my house. Probably, believe it was. Yeah. yeah, you know, and that's a very interesting thing too, Scoop, because uh, these days information, like I said, it's it, it's hard to get. It's good information is hard to come by, hmm. and it's still the case even with our cell phones and you know with the internet and everything else. If those things go away, how do you find the information? Hmm. You won't get it from the alert service either. Yeah, one well, one question one question I have is kind of a question of authority. Like in a disaster, in an emergency, somebody kind of has to take charge. And the the current thing is you have a lot of people now who resist authority. You know, for instance, anti-vaxxers resisting uh, public health, that sort of thing. I wonder if that's complicating uh, emergency management. It, it, it could be. It certainly would be for you know, the people who are emergency responders. Let me say two things about that. One is the incident command system, which is a very top-down organization. It, but it runs efficiently, and it's the model that the government uses from the federal, state, county, uh, you know, regional, county, city level, and also CERT teaches this incident command system. And it's basically there's one person at the top of these little many triangles. Uh, and the one person at the top gets all the information coordinated up and they get to make the decisions locally and they coordinate with the level up above them, which would be the city or the county. The county, when they get overwhelmed, they go up one level to, you know, the, the bigger county or the, the region and they go up one level when they get overwhelmed. So there, there is this triangle sort of hierarchy of what's going on. And, uh, and, and if there are people who don't want to really coordinate with this system, they're not going to be very effective. They're just going to be off doing stuff. And, you know, that's going to be complicating everything that's going on, complicating any response effort. Uh, the other thing is uh, in a fire or in a situation where there's an evacuation that's necessary, uh, there will often be people who... Uh, well, okay, there's people who are not ready for an evacuation, and the first thing they'll do is walk around the house in circles and say, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? And then they'll start calling their neighbors, what do I do, what do I do? And then their neighbors go, what do I do, what do I do? And then they'll start, you know, and it goes on from there. They may or may not uh, evacuate themselves very well, but there will always, almost always be people who, no, I'm not evacuating, I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight for my house or whatever. And I don't know if those are the, you know, if there's a Venn diagram where there's overlap of the people who just resist authority generally and people who want to stay uh, home and evacuate and not evacuate and save their house from whatever comes. Um, but there will always be a challenge to the, for, you know, the people who want to do the best thing for you, whatever that is. So it's mm-hmm. always a matter of interpretation. Yes. What is your opinion of FEMA? Are there many people who've 
love it because they, they were helped by it, but it had kind of a spotty uh, history, you know, especially back in Katrina. You know, I, the, that's a complicated question for me, trying to be in this area which is supported by FEMA. I think mm. a lot of people with FEMA do a really outstanding job. They have a lot of good experience in dealing with different kinds of emergencies. They plan ahead and they try and think through what do we do in case this happens or that happens. A lot of the people, uh, are their hearts are in the right place and their minds are in the right place and their work is focused on doing the right thing. Uh, that said, you know, you get like a good job brownie and you get situations where the people in charge, the people at the top, don't really have experience, don't really know what they're doing, don't really, they don't belong at the top of that many decisions, that much impact to with the people that are being hurt by some situation or affected by it. Um, and so it's pretty much like any situation, you know, you got to have the right people in the right place and the right power. And FEMA hasn't always had that situation. That's, you know, kind of hard to argue with that. They haven't always had the right people at the top. But I think that overall, FEMA is really trying to do the right thing. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're organized well. They've got a lot of people with a lot of people with their hearts in the right place. And they're, they're there for the right purpose. Yeah, speaking of government, uh, we were mentioning this earlier. There's the website called ready.gov, which is all about disaster preparedness. Uh, what do you think of this site? Is it helpful? You know, it is. Uh, there's a, a whole lot of the, the starting with make a plan. Um, that is something that everybody should like go and follow those directions. You know, plan ahead, build a kit do some low cost, no cost preparedness. That is stuff that people should like make as homework. Do one of those things every month or every week, something. Um, the government is mostly ready for emergencies overall that they're familiar with. So, you know, we've had a few tornadoes, we've had a few floods, we've had, you know, some things that we've had experience with. And so they, uh, they're prepared for, for, you know, they've got the forms and they've got the processes down for things that repeat. But every disaster is unique and uh, we might think that we have a toxic oil spill and there will be people with hazmat suits ready to tackle the immediate problem and police ready to evacuate the neighborhoods and public information officers ready to relay the correct and prevailing, you know, correct, correct information and, and to steer the prevailing commentary in the factually correct direction. Um, and they're, they're, you know, to, to the best of their capability, they're going to try and do the right thing. But... Um, when it's our neighborhoods that are quarantined because of a toxic spill or our house that gets red tagged for whatever reason, our house is sliding down the hill, you know, with the landslide. When it's our stuff, we're not really prepared for that. And FEMA can't, can't prepare us for that. So we kind of have to do the best we can as well. So, and there's another thing too, when it, when we, when someone doesn't have insurance or when they, uh, the insurance doesn't cover the damage that's done, then FEMA steps in and, and sort of looks at the situation and verifies that this damage was done and, and tries to give a way to make people whole in some definition of whole. Uh, so if you don't have insurance and, or if your insurance company doesn't cover the amount of damage, then you know, they'll put you in the system and they'll verify the damage and the coverage and everything. And then they'll, they'll send you to the state and the county for the resources that the state and county can help you with, uh, whether it's loans, grants, whatever, you know, um, we'll, we'll sort of put you into the, you know, the bigger bandage. 
and see if we can't help bring you back to some version of normal. Uh, you know, best efforts. Yeah, the whole idea of emergency preparedness. Yeah, I was living in the Bay Area uh, for 40 years. You know, even though I started out in Texas, I went there for, for work and found out that I wasn't nearly as prepared as I thought I was when we had the 1989 uh, earthquake. Yes. And, uh, you know, I thought, oh, I'm prepared. I'm, I was a Boy Scout. I've got my Scout knife and some food in the house. I was not prepared, and there was no one coming to help me for a while. And since then, I've always had a go, numerous go bags and uh, stockpiles of stuff just because I don't want to be in that position again. And people really should look at their pantry and see if it's something that's going to keep you alive for a while. You know, that's a really important point, Scoop. There's the go bags and there's stay bags. If you have, you know, if there's a toxic fume outside or, you know, really bad smoke from a wildfire or something that's going to keep you inside, you may be inside for a couple of days. So you probably want a gallon of water per person per day and per pet in your cabinets somewhere stored somewhere inside because you can't live without water. That's the number one most important thing. You can live without food for a few days. But it would be nice if you had some food that you don't have to cook. So, you know, some snacky kind of things or stuff that you didn't mind eating, you know, straight out of the can or whatever. Uh, and the ready.gov does give you some good guidance on where you can find, you know, the stuff that, that it doesn't have to cost you a bundle. Just go to the store and buy two things for your go bag every week or every grocery shopping. You know, get one more thing for your go bag and put it in your go bag. And when your go bag starts to get stale you know your your snacky bars or whatever uh start to be in there for three months then take them out and eat them and put a new one in there vienna sausages (laughs) anything that's that's going to keep you alive and money i forgot about money in mine and uh, i realized that when uh someone said they were going to go down to the ATMs. Like, well, the ATMs are, on, are not working. You know, the banks are, have closed. And after so that, used- I kept money in, in, a, in a little hiding place. Yeah, we're so used to using our credit cards for things that you forget how valuable ones, ones fives, and tens can be. And in an emergency, that may be the only thing you can spend. Ones, fives, tens, some, you know, a roll of quarters. The stores will be so happy to see you. Because you'll have the ones, fives, and tens that they need. Yeah. I, I, I had a question to turn around to you guys. Okay. You asked me about ready.gov. How good a resource is the state government if it allows power companies to fail during the coldest part of the winter? And how prepared do you think your residents are? This is not a new thing, but, you know, you, you got hit by it again this year. Uh, our our residents are better prepared than they were, or, or more of them are prepared than there there were. Uh, because they've actually lived through something, you know, that um, brought it right to the fore. However, we definitely still have a problem with our electric grid. It's not fixed. Um, We are somewhat isolated here because uh, we have a statewide electric grid that is not connected to the other electric grids in the U.S., that yeah. that could potentially provide some support if if uh, if ours was out, and um, 
from what I've been able to gather, the the legislature and and the 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 PUC Public Utility Commission and ERCOT have all been kind of slow to move on on fixing the problems that caused the collapse before. That said, we've had a couple of cold snaps that were pretty serious since then. Um, certainly not as bad as that particular one, but we've uh, we haven't seen a huge amount, a huge number of outages. There were quite a few outages in this most recent ice storm that we had. Uh, but the the biggest disaster there was that the trees started falling apart. Yeah, the elephant in the room on that is the gas supply. Natural gas has not been uh, remediated. They didn't do a, a lot of remediation of their or winterization. They were you know given you know, a list of the oh you've got to winterize. But there's nobody uh, going out and saying, well, show me your winterization. Not that I know of. So, you know, that's a real weakness, and uh, it, that needs to be fixed as long as they were using, you know, natural gas to, you know, create power. Yeah, I do think that the politicians know that if we have another disaster like the one that, that we experienced actually two years ago today, um, that they're going to be in deep, deep trouble. The, the uh, two things about that, one is that the utilities are probably one of the most affected things that will happen in, let's say, an earthquake or something that, you know, jars the ground, because all the utilities in the ground are older, most of it is older infrastructure and not really, you know, who's, who's taking care of this stuff? A lot of the uh, grid is older infrastructure, too, and the grid drivers, the software that does that is uh, a lot of that is also old. And subject to hacking, as we've seen in the news recently. The yeah, uh, the matter of burying the utilities came up uh, just recently, and uh, I actually am fortunate to live in an area that has buried utilities, and we had you know no problem with you know the, you know our power or our connectivity uh, going away like a lot of neighborhoods did. Yeah, same here. Uh, the uh, the problem with that is it, you know, the, they've said it, it's really expensive to retrofit that kind of thing. But yeah, you know, it's, it's really expensive. So you know whose cost is that? You're paying either way. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a funny thing that happens in emergency preparedness generally, and the number gets tossed around a little bit. But generally, preparing for an emergency costs one dollar, and responding to an emergency costs eleven. So, you know, you want to wait until something goes wrong? Yeah, I'm afraid that many people would answer yes to that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's that's a decision. That's a, that, And that's politics. That's basically... Or they would answer no and think yes, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, 1 to 11. Come on. How hard is that? Yeah. I, I, uh, I do think that there's been some improvement here. Uh, I can't imagine that there hasn't been, uh, but it's just not enough. And we've had other problems. We've had uh, we've had some failures just here within the city of Austin. We had a water outage that lasted for several days. You know, it was people were on boil water notice for oh 
probably four days or so, four or five days. And um, um, each time something like that happens, it undermines confidence in the in the authorities and also just in the infrastructure itself. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't help, you know, and uh, it may drive preparedness. I mean, people may become so concerned that things are going to blow up or melt down that they'll uh, that they'll start to prepare more effectively than they did before. Yeah, talk about in- infrastructure. Your Texas infrastructure, a lot of it is really old. And that goes with, you know, in fact, everywhere. A lot of the piping is still lead that's down there. A lot of the sewage pipes are really old and are constantly failing. Well, the, you know, the water system, we always have these, you know, <laughs> tsunamis that uh, erupt in the middle of the city when a water main breaks. And uh, they're just... Uh, a lot of really ancient infrastructure that, that no one seems to want to you know, deal with. Well, and there's another side to that. This isn't exactly directly related to disaster uh, preparedness, but water is a finite resource. And in a city like Austin in particular has been growing leaps and bounds over the years. And I don't think anybody's really paid sufficient attention to the question of where we're going to get water as we have more and more people using it, you know? Yeah. Um, that is one of the big uh, planning questions of cities is do we have enough resources to actually service the new population that developers want? And if developers come in with a big bag of cash, you know, there's cert- there's a lot of cities out there that'll basically say, oh, well, okay, we'll just overlook the fact that we've only got, you know, this much water and and you don't, uh, and, and you're out in the middle of the desert building these, you know, giant homes with green grass lawns on them. Oh, whatever. Planning ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely going to be an issue here uh, as we continue to grow and as the water tables continue to shrink. Yeah, there was a, you know, a big dispute between Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas just recently about you know the Colorado River, the usage of that water, and uh, it it's almost like they were ready to, to declare war on each other because every state, the farmers and the in, in industrial companies want more and more water, and the people, they want to have their water, but there's only a a finite amount of that stuff and and it's just strange to see you know all these people saying well, well you know i don't care about you i i just want it for my people and you know <laughs> that they've got to move past that if it, if we're going to survive you know scoop that's an interesting point because historically water rights have split more or less i think it's mississippi river so that on the East Coast, the water rights tend to be you got to share it with your neighbors. But west of the Mississippi, the uh, problem tends to be uh, whoever gets it first gets it. And so if the farmers get it, you know, and they get the allotment first, then, you know, what's to stop them from that's why we have the Colorado River in the situation that it's in is because it got used up in the Delta or got used up, you know, in agriculture somewhere earlier up the line before it got down to the people who, you know, don't get it anymore. See, and this is what worries me in all of this political craziness and chaos that we see now, 
Um, I see people who are involved in governance who do not have their eye on the ball. All they're focused on is getting elected, getting reelected, um, John, that's fighting, what, fighting the other the members of the other party. Yeah, they're not really they're not really doing public service. Well, yeah, the sign of the times. This is this is uh, really where politics is at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And what what is almost certainly happening now is that things are kind of crumbling because nobody's got their eye on the ball. You know, people are not taking care of the infrastructure. They're not taking care of the uh, the what supply chains. We saw this supply chain disruption uh, recently and. Uh, I can't help but think that's because whatever supply chain management existed had had uh, broken down somewhat. Yeah. And that's another kind of disaster, you know? You know, anything that impacts our lives in a really large medical, you know, a large way is going to be a disaster. It just depends on how you define, you know, some level of disaster. If it, if it affects us in a big deal, it's a disaster for us. Well, uh, people listening to this may be thinking, well, I'm not prepared at all. Can you give a basic primer on basic preparedness? You know, what should you have and what what should you not even waste your time on when you're doing a preparedness plan? Thank you, Scoot. Um, I think one thing is, you know, sign up for alerts, get alerts so that if there's a chance that you know what's going on, you can react accordingly. Um, the second thing is to make a plan to protect your people, make a plan for your family. You know, if it's a fire in the house, where do you get out? Where are the exits? Can we, can we make a plan to meet outside at whatever tree or whatever street? Um, you know, if something happens and we get separated, where do we meet? Who do we call out of state to let us know, you know, let each of us know what's going on? Some way of, of communicating our readiness or our okayness with the rest of our family. Um, make a go bag. A go bag might have a basic first aid kit because somebody's going to get a cut or a bruise. Uh, it might have emergency contact list that's actually printed because our phones may or may not work, but we may still be able to get a hold of people. Uh, it have your personal documents in a watertight bag or somewhere in the cloud. That's one that people don't usually think of, but you know, the title to your home, complete PIA to replace something like that. Uh, water, I mentioned water earlier, make sure you have one gallon per person per day and per pet in your, you're gonna need to drink, you're gonna need to wash, you're gonna need to be tidy, you know, healthy with your, your, your body. Um, so that's very important. And make sure you have that much for at least three days. I would suggest 10. If you're really thinking about it, two weeks of water isn't, isn't unreasonable. A three-day supply of non-perishable food and a can opener. And if you, can, you know, if you have a little cook stove or something, a way to cook it, that would be handy too. Uh, Scoop, you mentioned, and I'm going to flag you on this one, a battery-powered or a hand-crank radio and some extra batteries. Thank you for that. Flashlight, always helpful to have a flashlight to see what's going on. A small uh, high, personal hygiene kit, you know, a little extra toothbrush, a little extra, you know, travel shampoo or travel soap, whatever those kind of things are is always good. A very small toolkit, 
you never know when you're going to need a little screwdriver, you know, a little some some it doesn't have to be big. It just has to be something that, you, that will help you, you know, get out of a jam. Uh, extra phone charger and extra batteries is always good for your phone. Um, an extra coat. If it's cold weather, put an extra coat in there, extra sweater, you know, or a change of clothes. Put some clean socks and underwear in there because at the minimum, you're going to need uh, an extra layer if it's cold outside and all of a sudden you don't have enough heat. Uh, and as you mentioned, Scoop, once more, uh, tagging you on this one, some extra cash, small bills and change. Put a little, you know, baggie of small bills and change in your, in your go bag. Um, also, I want to mention a go bag for pets. People don't often think of pets, but everybody, you know, everybody that has a pet is going to go, oh my gosh, I forgot my pet. Um, oh, also in the go bag, put like a week's worth of your medicines in there. If you take any kind of medicines, vitamins, whatever it is that you take that you want to not live without, um, then put a week's worth of those in and be sure to trade those out every now and then. But getting back to the pets, uh, get a pet carrier with the name of your pet, your phone number, and a brief description of your pet or a, and a, you know, a photo is always good. A picture of you and your pet so that in case you get separated, you can. it'll be easier to match you up with your pet. Uh, it's good to, if your pet has a collar and a leash, even cats, uh, with an ID tag, ID tag and a phone number. A pet muzzle is always good. You don't know sometimes when if you get evacuated and you need to go to a shelter, you're going to need a pet muzzle. A uh, picture of your pet is always good. Uh, pet food, a three to five uh, day supply, a three to seven day supply of food, and your, uh, you know, a, an extra dish so that you can, you know, not have to use your hands or whatever. Uh, a copy of the pet's immunization records is always very good. Put it in a watertight baggie with uh, whatever medicines your, your pet is taking. Um, and a few treats and toys because, you know, even your kids need a few treats and toys over the course of the long haul. I'm trying to picture myself trying to muzzle my cat. <laughs> well, you know, ca cats don't muzzle, but they do um, They do, do a pet carrier. Yeah. One other thing that I found was essential to have in your uh, go or your stay bag, uh, when we had the 1991 Oakland Hills fire, which destroyed thousands of homes, I was right in the middle of that. And I saw it coming over the hill, and I thought we were going to be burned out. And yeah, my wife and I started loading up our vehicles with you know all the stuff that's you know important papers and uh, whatever we could think of. And she mentioned we're going to need something in case we're stuck somewhere for entertainment. We need to bring something that means something to it. She brought her sewing machine. I brought my computer. And there you go. <laughs> it's like okay <laughs> maybe that's not in everybody's go bag but that was our go bag because i could see me being stuck somewhere without my computer you know i'd i'd just be a basket case yeah. but that assumes you can plug it in somewhere <laughs> well you know if you're heading out of town if you get the evacuation notice and you just grab your go bag then you've got the minimal and then you grab your computer and you're set to go yep <laughs> So you mentioned earlier this kind of vision of people kind of wandering around what to do when they're being evacuated. Are there additional things that you should consider uh, if uh, an evacuation uh, is possible? You know, yeah. The, the most important thing is if you get a notice that you need to be evacuated, you only have two or three minutes to get out of town, to, to get out of the way. You don't have, uh, it's not like, 
you know, they're giving you 15 minutes notice. No, they're basically saying, we can't avoid this. The fire's coming down the hill. This house is in danger. Let's get these people out of here. And so uh, if you get an evacuation notice, do not wander around your house saying, is this real? What do I do? What do I take? I'm going to lose everything. I can't, you know, whatever. Do not do that. Just, you know, grab whatever's important to you. Grab your pets, grab your go bag if you've got one. Good for you if you do. Get in the car and get out of the way. That, that's the most important thing is if you get an evacuation notice, you do not have time to dither. Get out of the way. Just go. Get, get in your car and start going places. You'll have police on the road trying to get you out of town into a safe place. Just go. Yeah, they have uh, pretty massive evacuations sometimes when we have hurricanes on the coast here, anywhere, anywhere that they have hurricanes. And those, one of the problems with those evacuations is traffic control. It's yes. just hard to get people out. So it seems to me that it would be best to leave as quickly as you can. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the problem is most people say, well, I'm going to wait and see what's happening. And then when it gets really funky, everybody leaves at the same time. And that's when you have the, you know, the travel meltdowns on the highways. Oh, my Lord. That's why when you get an evacuation notice, you know, you really do need to like, you know, grab and go. Just get out of there. Get out of the way of the traffic. Get out of the way of the the storms, whatever, the fire, whatever it is. One thing I, that, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, one thing I've, I've talked about before is people in an emergency can tend to step up and do the right thing. I, I experienced that during the uh, uh, earthquake in 1989. Uh, everybody's phones were out. I mean, you couldn't get a phone a call, but for some reason, my phone was active. I got a dial tone, and of course, I went online immediately and got onto one of the online so the Genie uh, online service. And there were all sorts of people. There were people forming helplines or help chat groups there to help people get out a message to their to their family, to their friends, to their children that aren't in the Bay Area. And I started doing that and. I had guys say, hey, I'm in Texas. You're from Texas. Anyone you want me to call? And I gave him my mother's phone number. And a couple of days later, she called me and said, who is this guy that's calling saying that you're not dead? I, I, I would have known if you were dead. <laughs> it's like, no, no, that's just some computer folks that are taking care of uh, getting out, uh, you know, people's, uh, you know, status to uh, their families and I, I did that for a lot of people and it was amazing how many folks were stepping up you know they could have been out trying to work on their own problems but they got online and uh, tried to you know step up and help people this gets right back to where we started and and john john's a very important work with the tsunami groups and with the katrina katrina was amazing mm -hmm. katrina was like so chaotic and all the people that were doing background tasks, which were trying to get the communication going, you know, helping people learn where the shelters were, helping people connect with each other, tracking people, just keeping track of what was going on, because who could track you if you decide to go left or right? Yeah, and there's usually various uh, organizations, agencies involved in something like that. And it's important for them to, to figure out how to coordinate with each other. And that that was actually part of the problem after Katrina was getting the coordination done. 
And, and part of the problem of coordination was that people were so focused on what they were doing in their specific realm that they didn't really have time to think about how to coordinate or connect with another group or agency. Right. Yeah. And there, there are channels for connecting, but as, as I mentioned a couple of times, coordination of communications is sometimes the most challenging thing. So, you know, have a plan, make, make a plan for how you're going to coordinate and communicate with your own family. Start there. We're getting close to the end. Uh, The one other thing I was going to bring up and we only have a couple of minutes left, but uh, this thing that happened in Ohio the other day, the train derailment, um, did you pay any attention to that? Have you got any thoughts about that kind of emergency? Uh, you know, uh, it's a it's another infrastructure moment uh, in, in some ways. Uh, do we have the emergency response to deal with some of the catastrophic failures that we have in our system? The short answer is, yeah, kind of. And the longer answer is... Uh, dialing, you know, calling FEMA. Well, I I really want to thank you for joining us tonight. This this has been a great discussion, and uh, now you got my wheels turning. I'm thinking about all the things I have to do. I have to go buy some batteries. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of batteries. That's the worst thing that happens. You're in good shape. <laughs> uh, my wife started buying five gallon uh, jugs of water. And uh, piling them up out in the garage after that last emergency. That's oh, and uh, <laughs> it's time to rotate those things now. Yeah. So one quick thing: uh, don't put plastic jugs of water on your cement, directly on your cement floors. Put a piece of wood underneath. There's some chemical. I don't know much about this, but there's some chemical reaction that happens between cement and plastic. Oh, interesting. It makes those bottom jugs of water. Uh, not as good as the top jugs of water. So just put, you know, cardboard, newspaper, or something that takes the cement away from the plastic. Well, there's some really useful information because I'm guilty of that. I go get a piece of wood now. <laughs> we got a lot of canned food out there too that we got to kind of have food for an emergency. But yeah, I realized that there's, you know, there's this whole question of kind of coordinating the kinds of foods that you get to make sure that you're getting adequate nutrition uh certainly beans are probably a staple they're they're easy to find in cans make sure you have a can opener i didn't have one in my first go bag and they're like you've got all this canned food how are you going to get it open skippy yeah yeah that's an important one yeah well thanks so much judy for joining us this has been great thank you john and thank you scoop it's been a fascinating conversation thank you yeah Hope you'll come back sometime. You can follow the Plutopia News Network at Plutopia.io. On Facebook, go to at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. With John Lepkowski, I'm Scoop Sweeney. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.